the prophet Ezekiel chapter 47 this morning as we'd like to read for you from verse 1 and maybe, you know, get our minds around some of the ideas that are presented for us in terms of the waters in which are presented as in coming forth from the temple of God, from the throne of God, from beneath the threshold. I want us to get a picture of this in our minds. In Ezekiel chapter 47, let's begin with verse 1. Afterward, he brought me again unto the door of the house. In the book of Ezekiel, it's about in the middle of your Bible, if you're looking for it. It's beyond the book of uh, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. It comes before the book of Daniel. Afterward, he brought me again unto the door of the house, and behold, waters issued out from under the threshold of the house eastward. For the forefront of the house stood toward the east, and the waters came down from under the right side of the house at the south side of the altar. Then brought me out of the way of the gate northward, and led me about the way without unto the utter, or you could refer to it as the outer, the utter gate by the way that looketh eastward, and behold, there ran out waters on the right side. So we have this picture in our mind that we're seeing again the temple. This is a recurring vision. Uh, by the prophet Ezekiel of the temple. So again, he's brought out by the gate northward and led. Why? Because only the Lord belonged to the east gate. So he's brought out to the northern, northern gate and he sees this water coming out from underneath the right side of the house and along the south side of the altar from out of the threshold eastward. And now he sees this water. And he says, as he was brought to the utter gate by the way that looks eastward, behold, there ran out waters on the right side. And when the man that had the line in his hand went forth eastward, he measured a thousand cubits. And he brought me through the waters. The waters were to the ankles. Now get that picture as the water is coming out of this temple, that it's as high now, having gone some 1,000 cubits to the ankles. And so he measures a 1,000, and he brought me through the waters, and the waters were to the knees. So he goes out further, another 1,000 cubits. I guess you could say that a 1,000 cubits is... More like 1,500 feet, 1,500 to 2,000 feet further away. Now it's up to his knees. The further away he goes from the temple, the, 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 the water rises. Again, he measures a 1,000 and brought me through the waters and they were to his loins. Here's the midsection now. He's in the water. And afterwards, another 1,000. And it was a river. He said that I could not pass over, for the waters were risen. And then he says, waters to swim in, a river that could not be passed over. And so, from the ankles, to the knees, to the loins, and now overwhelming enough to swim in. 
And he said unto me, Son of man, hast thou seen this? Then he brought me and caused me to return to the brink of the river. Now, when I had returned, behold, at the bank of the river were very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said unto me, These waters issue out toward the east country and go into the desert and go into the sea, which being brought forth into the sea, the waters shall be healed. And it shall come to pass that everything that liveth, which moveth, whithsoever the river shall come, shall live. And there shall be a very great multitude of fish, because these waters shall come thither, for they shall be healed, and everything that shall live, whither the river cometh. And just two more verses. And it shall come to pass that the fishers shall stand upon it from Engedi, even unto Eneglaim, they shall be a place to spread forth nets. Their fish shall be according to their kinds, as the fish of the great sea, exceeding many. But, verse 11, but the miry places thereof and the marshes thereof shall not be healed. They shall be given to salt. Well, the Bible, as we know it, is a rich book. And it has many pictures. The prophet Ezekiel here has been given a vision. You could say it's a prophetic parable. It's a picture. You know, last time we spoke, we spoke about a parable in the New Testament of the unjust steward. Today we're looking basically at a parable uh, by the prophet Ezekiel who was given a vision. Now, Ezekiel was a priest. He was a Levite. And about the time when he was to go into the ministry of the Levitical priesthood, which is 30 years old, he was taken captive. He was taken into the Babylonian captivity. Now, we know of other men that have been in the captivity of Babylon. You remember Daniel. Daniel was a man who was taken away from his homeland and worked in the courts, the government. He was, he was in the top tier, if you will. But Ezekiel, he was like a farmer, if you will. I mean, if Daniel was in Washington, D.C., serving the president, if you will, Ezekiel was way far off somewhere in Texas, maybe somewhere in Lubbock, you know, cotton fields. That's how far apart they were removed. However, they were both working in the same mission field, if you will. They were serving God. That lets us know that, you know, it's a big planet. And even within the confines of Babylon, you know, uh, God is working among his people. Some in the countryside, some in the big city. Don't think that you got a corner on the work of God that surrounds you and your life. God is much larger than our finite perception. Not only of who God is, but also of His ministry itself. So Ezekiel is a man of God who's been chosen, and his particular chose choice of prophetic purposes, I guess you could say, was he dealt in visions. And one of the first visions that he had was that 
of the glory of God, the very presence of God, the very throne room of God. And in that great chapter, the very beginning of this book, you can visualize or at least attempt to visualize the throne of God, the spirits of God, the seven eyes, the wheels within wheels. I mean, it's a, an amazing vision of the very throne of God. And he saw, if you will, if you could see it, the very glory of God. And of course, the smoke and the fire and all that surrounded the throne and the presence of God, Ezekiel was able to envision. And all this alongside the river Kabar, which was a river in Babylon. It wasn't the Jordan. It wasn't one of the beautiful rivers that he was accustomed to knowing within the land of Palestine, but it was a river in Babylon when he was taken captive, when he was destitute of his homeland, when he suffered tribulation and disgust. Uh, If you can read in the book of Jeremiah, you can read more about the deprivation of what took place when Nebuchadnezzar came down and with great military strength robbed the people of their homeland separated families. There was great crime. There was great anguish when mothers were separated from their children, when families were torn apart and and, uh, uh, young people and old people alike were killed, were destroyed, and some of the remaining were taken captive to serve as slaves, as vassals, if you will, in the great, great um, empire, the Babylonian empire. And so, among the great devastation, Ezekiel, a a priest, felt the same. It was during that time, it was during that devastation of his life that God revealed himself in a vision. And so too it is with us many times when we are deplete of spiritual strength, if you will, and we feel anguish and the disappointments of life, sickness and heartaches, that God oftentimes meets us and reveals to us His power and His presence. Well, along the way, Ezekiel has more visions than that one. And one of the most devastating visions that Ezekiel must foresee was the removal or the departure of the glory of God from the temple service. The altar was taken away by the Babylonian cap, cap, uh, uh, leaders, uh, the military. And that was around 586 B.C., according to the time uh, that has been designated by certain men of great scientific and mathematical minds. Absolutely how we can know this, uh, you can't. But suffice it to say, it was around 586 B.C. They never, ever, ever after that saw with their own eyes the altar that was part of the temple worship service that Ezekiel was privileged to at least, in his mind, serve. That altar was taken away and never again restored, ever, in any temple thereafter. There was restorations, there was rebuilding, of course, after the seven years of Babylonian captivity, yes, under the Nehemiah and Ezra, but the pieces, the apparatus, the furniture of that temple was never again restored as in the days it once, as it once was. Along the way, there's other visions, but This vision, which begins much earlier, probably in the 40th chapter or thereabout, 
is a vision of the restoration of the temple. A fulfillment is prophesied uh, that something yet future from Ezekiel's perspective. While he is in captivity, he sees the light of what is to come. And so what we have here in this idea is this temple that he sees in a vision. And he sees the water, and we read about the water and how it proceeded out from the very threshold of the house toward the east and, of course, and outward. So much so that it got to the point where it was so deep that you had to swim in it. That's how deep it went. And so he sees this vision, and it's all around the restoration of the great temple of God. And this is where we're at. Now, when we look at this particular text, there's, I think there's one major theme that we can have in the back of our mind as we read these things. You know, the water, the increasing it, the advancement of it. And that is, I believe, the general theme is the advancement of God's kingdom. The advancements of God's kingdom. And you can look at it maybe in a couple different ways. You can look at it in the advancement of the gospel when it first was brought to some fishermen along the seashore of Galilee and eventually permeated the whole countryside in in Jerusalem and then where else? And then in Samaria and then, of course, in the uttermost parts of the world as it it had gone forth from Jerusalem and out into the world at that particular time and continues to this very day. We're living and breathing examples of the advancement of the kingdom of God. So you can look at it from that perspective. But in the text, it seems that it has a more practical and personal application when we think about this water that we ourselves swim in. We feel the sensitivity of the water that's overwhelming. And what begins at the ankles continues on. And so, in some sense, I think it reflects the sanctification of a believer in Christ as they grow and become spiritually mature in the Lord. That's what we're all about as we come to worship God. But all this within the context of great respect unto the Lord. You can only imagine what it must have been like for the prophet to have lost all resemblance of what worship service was like. He was taken away forcefully to live in a captive land and never to again enjoy the privilege of serving his Lord under the ordinances and commandments of the Old Testament. What a terrible experience he must have had. And yet, he was filled with hope and immeasurable love and the presentation of what would eventually come. We sit in the same kind of environment today. We have concerns about money, making ends meet. We have concerns about health, what we're going to do with our lives, what we're going to do. You know, as long, or I should say it this way, as important as the Apostle Paul was. You know, how significant was his ministry? And yet, his life was cut short. I mean, why didn't God just extend it? His life was relatively short. I don't know how long he lived, but he didn't live as long as he could have because it was cut short by being persecuted for his faith. And no matter how important we may think we are, our life is but a short while on earth. 
And you measure your life according to the apostles, what he accomplished, what he did for the sake of the gospel. And then you consider what you do. The fact is, there's nothing worthwhile except that which is done for the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing that's lasting like the work that we do for Christ while we live. However long, however short our experience is on this world, uh, what we do for Christ shall last. That, is the, that should be our ultimate goal. These are the waters that we seek this morning. Are we swimming in them? Or are you only knee deep? Are you wading in a water that's only ankle deep? Our pursuit as Christians. You know, this is, we're going to do some hard shelling this morning because that's a, t- that's a phrase that you may not necessarily be aware of, but it's very critical to the old Baptist faith. It's very simple. And that is, we teach the Bible as it speaks. We speak the truth of the Bible and we apply it in such a way that really across the gamut of Christian circles is very unique and unheard of. This text is really not talking about how we get into this water, is it? It's not talking about how we get into that life. It's talking about those of us who are in the water and how we proceed through it in order that we might enjoy the privileges of an abundant and fruitful and spiritual experience this side of glory. Now, there's going to be enough in heaven that we won't really have to worry about just how deep the waters will be there. It will be wonderful. The swimming will be wonderful. You ever been at the beach when the temperature is about 100 degrees out and the sand is so hot you've got to run to the water's edge? I've been there not long ago at Virginia Beach. And that water is cool, refreshing, it's glorious. Great experience. Great experience. It's even better when you let go of the bottom and you swim. And if you can't swim, you can do the doggy paddle. But it's wonderful to let go and to be released in that water. It's similar to trusting God. I know it's difficult at times to let your feet go of the ocean floor and to trust everything around you to hold you up so that you don't sink and get carried away by the current. It's the same thing in our relationship with the Lord. You know, as we live this life, the difficulties that surround us, we want to be attached, connected. We don't want to let go. We don't want to believe in God. We don't want to trust God. But loyalty in God is just that. God tests each one of our faith. He proves it in terms of what it's worth. What is it? What is this thing called faith? How do we know it is overcoming of the world? How do we know what faith is until it's tested? Until we must get free of every crutch and every dependence that we may have or seek? Well, we find this within the water. You know what's interesting about this river here that we speak about? If you think about it, rivers run throughout the Bible. In fact, the first two chapters has a river. It's a river that comes right out of the Garden of Eden. And this river that stems out of Garden of Eden, it branches off. It's a tributary, if you will, of four other rivers. And that, those four other rivers literally permeate the whole Mesopotamia Valley. Isn't that wonderful? In the Christian life, we feed on the life of God, the spiritual life of God. 
It's our nutrition. It's our sustenance. And by it, we're preserved. I think of the River Nile, how important the Nile is in Egypt. They say, you know, after World War II, the sustenance of the River Nile permeated as it overflowed the banks and enriched with its sediment all the area around about it so that the farmers would benefit and the harvest would be enriched and people use the river for such things that would sustain them. And since World War II, at that particular period of time, the amount um, of the degree of this, the, the nourishment derived from the sediment of the Nile has dropped tremendously for one reason or another. A dam, you know, their scientific minds have created ways in which they can dam up the river. Well, the net result was the lack of sediment that would flow out into the, and enrich the soil all around about. And then on top of that, there's pollution, not only from machinery and farm equipment, but from animal livestock itself. And instead of being flushed out into the Great River, into the Mediterranean, it just hung around. So the percentage that once was in giving life now has reduced dramatically. It's no longer what it once was. In some places in this country, I heard there's over 400 dams that have been broken up in order to re or allow the water to flow again as it originally was designed. Isn't it amazing how God is so wonderful in his creation? The purpose for the things in which he does. Man comes along and stops it up. You know, sin has a way of stopping up the flow of the river, if you will. Because it wasn't long in the Garden of Eden that Adam sinned. And that river that went out from the Garden of Eden no longer uh, was pure, divinely pure. You see, sin contaminated it, if you will. There was pollution found. The sediment was no longer enriched by divinity. It was destroyed by humanity. And so we see those kind of analogies throughout the Bible. Another river that we read about in the Bible is in the last two chapters. Here we got one in the first two chapters. We got another one at the last two chapters. Revelation 21 and 22. There's water, there's a river there, and a river back there. And both of them represented a period of time when there was no curse. That river in the Garden of Eden, they hadn't sinned yet. It was flowing This river of which I speak in Revelation, it's after the curse. The curse is no more. There's no more death. There's no more sorrow. There's all happiness. It's amazing. Out of the 1,188 or 85, I can't remember exactly, chapters in the Bible, only four are represented outside the curse of sin. And that river of life in the book of Revelation speaks of the healing of the nations. But it proceeds from the very throne of God. It proceeds from the Lamb of God. Isn't that beautiful? The Lamb of God. Water in the Bible was a beautiful picture of cleansing, of healing, of washing away my sins. You know, how beautiful a thought that is. How can a man that is born of a woman, unclean, unfit, how can a man be just with God? How can he... Be accepted with a holy God. How can that be? Well, water in the Bible is one of my favorite subjects. And I'm not going to be too busy about all the different scriptures that relate to it. But one of the uh, 
books of the Bible that reflects more about water outside of the book of Genesis is the book of Isaiah. Let me just read for you some of the scriptures that I kind of like. Isaiah 12, the scripture says, Therefore with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. Do you ever see anybody dig a well? That's a lot of work. You, know, you and I, we're, we're kind of accustomed to just going to the faucet and turning it on. But back in the day, it wasn't that easy. You know, water was something, you know, it was a work. Brother Compton would tell me, I, he said, you want, it took all day long to wash clothes. First thing, we had to go get the water. We had to fetch it in, in buckets and bring it up to the house for dishes. And I've known people, I've known people, I don't know, maybe you young people haven't, but I know people that literally use the board to wash clothes. I know that's unheard of nowadays. You know, we just throw it in the wash machine, we turn the spigot on, we got water, little detergent, we got clean clothes. I can walk away from the laundry machine and I can do anything else and while I'm doing anything else, the clothes are getting clean. But back in the day, they had to sit there and they had to rub this and that and get that clean, that cotton dirt out of the clothes, hang them up on the... And, and it was a task. That's what I'm trying to say. Water wasn't easy. But here, he says, therefore, with joy... He's picturing a day that with joy, not to dig a well, not to work hard at it, it's going to be provided for me. With joy shall I draw water out of the wells of salvation. The Lord Jesus Christ spoke to a woman of Samaria once. He says, if you knew who it was that was speaking to you, if you knew, she didn't know, did she? My goodness. Over there in the book of Revelation, it speaks about whosoever thirst. Do you thirst for the water of life everlasting? You know, if a man has a thirst, what's that say? It says that I'm alive. No dead man has a thirst. That's pretty easy. I'll tell you, the Arminians got us all mixed up, don't we? Listen. If we have a thirst, if we do the commandments of God, if we love God, he that is just, let him be just still. If we are made just by the cleansing fountain of God's blood in Christ, then we stand complete. And what I'm doing now is simply swimming in it. I'm enjoying it. I've got a thirst for the things of God. That's because of God working in me. You see, that's what that scripture speaks of. When the Israelites came out of Egypt, now they were about three days and they were thirsty. That makes sense. I don't know how you take care of providing water for about three million people. Now, I know there's about a million men, but you didn't, you, they didn't count the women and the children. So let's just estimate it high at about three million people out of Egypt. Now, they were well taken care of in Egypt. They had garlic. They had leeks. They had onions. They had water. When you go out in the wilderness, they saw the wonderful work of God. They were delivered through the Red Sea by the power of the Almighty. And they started to lament because they were thirsty. You know, this was going to be typical of uh, thousands of years of Israelites complaining against God who's provided for them over and over and over again. So they, they come to this place called Mara, which in the Hebrew tongue means bitter. You remember... They came to the water and they tasted it and it was bitter. They started complaining against Moses. And so God said, okay, what I want you to do is I want you to throw a tree in the water. 
a tree, threw it into the water, and the waters became sweet. You know, the Lord is a picture in the Bible of a tree. And the tree was put into the water of Mara, and the waters became sweet to the taste. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Human nature is bitter. Human nature is bitter. Look at mankind. Look at the world. People arguing. The rage. Rage of man every day in the news. Rage. Fist against God, the Almighty. What's he ever done? Why are you so mad at God? Why is mankind so mad at God? He's proud. Man doesn't want God to reign over him. doesn't want God involved in his life. And so anyway, the water of Christ, the wells of salvation, have supplied our every need. Isaiah chapter 33. Here's another favorite text. I've got to keep moving because I'm going to miss my delight this morning in my text. I'll just hit them real quick. Here's 33 of Isaiah. Notice what he says. But there, speaking about Zion, the city of God, yet future from his vantage point, says, There the glorious Lord will be unto us a place of what? Of broad rivers. Of broad rivers. And streams wherein shall go no galley with oars, neither shall gallant ship pass by. And so there was great security in the river of God. And... It reminded me of a text in the 46th Psalm. There is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place, the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. What the Israelites learned back there at Marah was that God was to be their provider. God was the, he was the source of the tap water. He was the engine that provided the flow, the current, of the water. It was God. He wanted them to recognize that He was the source, the sustenance, the security, the provider of their lives. That's what He wanted. Very simple. But they refused over and over again. Now, you and I have it doubly hard today. We just have it much more difficult to come to that conclusion. We've got too many irons in the fire in our day and age. We need to think back biblically. Notice this, what it says in the 35th chapter of Isaiah. Here it is. Strengthen ye the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. Say to them that are a fearful heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. There's God being your shield and buckler. How often do we look to God as our source of strength in our life? We know we're faced with a problem. And we look at every other option other than God. The eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as a heart and tongue of a dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. And the parched ground shall become a pool. And the thirsty land springs of water in the habitation of dragons. Where each lay shall be grass and reeds and rushes. He's talking about a desert being brought forth through this stream of water, life, vigor, vitality, strength. That's what he's talking about. We can go on further in the book of Zechariah and we can see the fountain of life. A fountain of life that provides for sin. And he says, uncleanness. In other words, God's people are made pure as their sins are washed away. 
When we think about our sins washed away, we think about the blood of the Lord, the cleansing fountain, Emmanuel's veins. We think about the precious blood of Christ. And we think about redemption, don't we? Now, the old-timers, they had this theological perspective. They, used, they, said, they would say it this way, of redemption accomplished and applied. They talked about this double-fold facet of redemption. It was one thing they said that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us legally at the cross. Before you and I were even born, the Lord was providing on your behalf. But then, he, then they would mention something about not only redemption accomplished, but applied. In other words, that's how the answer to the question, how can a man who is born of an unclean woman be made just before God? How does that actually take place? Is it, it's something in addition to, if you will... The legal footing of the bloodshed at the cross. There must be something applied to you. Applied. That's why every man ever beholden in the covenant of grace from before the foundation of the world must not be conceived of life before entering everlasting glory. There must be that because there must be an application of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm going to skip a few of these favorite texts and just go straight to another passage in Ezekiel, which is very, very popular. It helps us understand this actual fountain of cleansing. And this is in the 36th chapter, and we read this. He said, I'm going to sanctify my name among the heathen. Now, it's really neat because, you know, some of the errors that we can face with in that 30, uh, in, in Ezekiel, in 47th chapter, some of the errors that we can get into, I'm going to give you two of them. One of them is taking what we're talking about, these rivers, literally. Like literally. Gates, literally. Thresholds, literally. Okay? That, that would be one error. The other error is to read these scriptures like we're reading about in Ezekiel and applying them from our vantage point something yet future. So we have it literal, and we have it something far off in the future, in other words, at the end. Well, those errors, I think if you wanted to do some further studying, are considered Christian reconstructionalism and dispensationalism. There's two errors. Both those errors take scriptures like this and apply them in a literal fashion. But you can't do that because it's impossible. It's impossible. You know the East Gate? You do a study on the East Gate today. It's closed. You know when it was closed? It was shut up in the 1500s by the Ottoman Empire. You can't find it. It's buried. Well, they, they covered it up. They closed in the East Gate of the temple, the literal one, they closed it up in 1540 because they knew that the Messiah would come through the East Gate, so they wanted to prevent his coming. So they think literally, don't they? They think these waters are something yet future, and they don't understand it, but they, con- they convey it in a very physical fashion. No, these 
rivers of water of which we speak are fulfilled in Christ. The rivers of water in which we speak speak of the cleansing that we as sinners have in Jesus the Lord. We're talking about spiritual things. Now in Ezekiel 36, this is what I'm talking about. And one of the characteristics when we read about this cleansing that takes place, or I'm going to give you a New Testament phrase, this washing of regeneration, where we're cleansed, where a sinner is taken as a vain, wild, sinful child and makes a sinful servant of slave to sin and makes him as a little child of grace, you see. He's sanctified or he's set apart. But how is it done practically? How is it? If, if what Brother Steve says is true, that we must be conceived, born, if, if you want to combine those two together. In other words, we've become uh, human and then we're cleansed. The blood of Christ is applied to us. How is it applied to us? It's very simple. It's through the power of the Spirit of God and the new birth. This is what he means when he says, I will take you from among the heathen, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Verse 24, Ezekiel 36. Then he said, I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean from all what? Your filthiness, from all your idols. I will cleanse you. And you say, well, Brother Steve, that doesn't tell anything about washing or regeneration. And it is true up to that point. I mean, you could go back to the Old Testament laver. They had this big, humongous bronze laver, and it was filled with water. And when the priest went in from the outer court, that's where it was, into the tabernacle, they must first wash their hands and their feet. They were very cleansed from a practical outward standpoint. They paid great respect unto God. That temple was literally the place where God dwelt amongst men. You couldn't find them in the trees. You couldn't find them in the sky. You couldn't find them in a book. You couldn't find them anywhere but in that temple. And he was represented right there in that temple by smoke and by fire. That was the very presence of God. The priests were scared to death to go into that Holy of Holies, because they may not come out alive. It was in the very presence of God that they performed the sacrifice once a year upon the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. Isn't that beautiful? Well, here's the characteristics of something yet future that Ezekiel now has privy to through this prophecy. He said, a new heart. Also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. Now here's the contrast between what went on back there and what goes on today. They serve God through the administration of mediators. They served God. They heard God from the priest. They served God through all this apparatus that acted as a mediator. In other words, God didn't teach them directly. He taught them through teachers. That's why they were to teach one another. But there would come a time when they shall no longer teach one another. They shall know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I shall be known of them. You see, there's a significance to this being born of God where God no longer dwells in furniture and tabernacle stuff, but He dwells, He makes His home in us, in our hearts, 
And he does so through the power of the Holy Spirit by cleansing away a heart of sin and giving you a heart of flesh, you know. And you are now the inhabitor of the dwelling of God. That's how God does it. He takes the old and he makes it new. Literally. Now, you still hang around, don't you? Why? Because you live in this flesh. The flesh is, is, um, is under the judgment and the curse of God. But the spirit is alive. We are quickened together with Christ. See? And that's the beauty of it all. And so back in Ezekiel chapter 47, which is our text, we're going to move right along as we give the details of this great vision. Now that we have our footing set. And by the way, when Nicodemus was met by the Lord Jesus Christ in Jerusalem somewhere in disclosure, he said to Nicodemus, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus didn't have a clue what he was talking about. Nicodemus, what? He was thinking of embryonic fluids, was he not? Do I got to re-enter my mother's womb? That's impossible. Where was he thinking? Some people today are thinking about, well, the baptismal pool or someplace like that. And you know what Jesus responded? He said, you do not know our witness. In other words, you're a master of Israel and you don't know these things? Listen, if you took the Bible and you could, if you were strong enough, to wring it out. Anybody here strong enough? You know, to wring it out. And you know what's going to come out of it? Water. That's how much water is spoken of in the Bible. And the Lord Jesus Christ pictures himself as giving this life-giving water. It proceeds from him. This river of life proceeds from God Almighty. And it's full of water. And that water is a picture of the Holy Spirit. That life-giving water. And so we find ourselves in verse 1. Afterward, he brought me again unto the door of the house, and behold, waters. Now, I can't hit everything here because we would be beyond my ten minutes left. And I'm just getting started. All right. It's a secret source. The water. I can't see where it originates. It's coming out from the threshold. But I can't see it. It's secret. And so it is with salvation. The wells of salvation. I can't understand it. I can't put my finger on it. I can think about election, but I can't conceive it. Somewhere back in eternity past, before the mountains were created, before the sky was put in place, before man was ever born, God had a scheme of saving His people from their sins. It's secret. It's mysterious. But it's wonderful. And it's enormously glorious to think about. And these waters, they issued out from under the threshold. Can't see them? They're secret. How wonderful, how majestic, how mysterious is this wonderful eternal salvation. And they proceed under the threshold. Now, the threshold, if, you know, everything I say now has a link to what previously has been mentioned by Ezekiel. He speaks about the threshold of the priest. And he speaks about his threshold, where he puts the soles of his feet. God has feet. Can you believe that? In uh, the 43rd chapter, I believe it is, he speaks about 
his threshold, but it was made profane by the priest's threshold. In other words, they trodden underfoot the holy things of God. This world despitefully uses the holy things of God. Now, don't you pick up where they leave off. Don't you respect God with disrespect. You bring your best before the Lord. You bring your very best before the Lord. Now, what that is, I'll leave that up to you. Let your moderation be known unto all men. You serve God. You are not like the world. You know, one, now remember, one of the errors I mentioned is Christian Reconstructionism, which believes, basically, that this world will eventually be reformed for Christianity. Now, that's a, I mean, let's think about that for a minute. It sounds plausible, if you think about it, because the advancement of the kingdom, as we first mentioned, that this basically centers upon, we can see it literally take shape when these apostles went out and you had people that were Roman steeped in polytheism and all other kind of isms be converted to the truth of Christianity. That's saying something. The apostles turned the world upside down. And we can see as ages go by, out of the dark ages, watch this, out of the dark ages, there was a time when you were, your, your children were stripped away from you for merely teaching them the Lord's Prayer. I mean, there was terrible times in our past, and we can see this develop over a course of centuries, how that the gospel permeating the world brought light and life, if you will, to cultures and society. And we see this, we see it taking shape. Look at our own founding of this country. Thomas Jefferson, you remember he was pending these words, obviously influenced by great French philosophers, that all men are created equal, right? And endowed by their creator with unalienable rights, this, that, and the other, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But he, he mentioned that these things were sacred. He used that word sacred. Because his mindset was thinking biblically. He realized that from his creator, he realized that all men were created equal. Even though from a natural perspective, he could see the disruption in the world. See, God enabled him providentially to pen words that were so mysteriously prophetic. Because in though the time uh, in the world, especially in the U.S., uh, there was some disruption concerning what equality was. But you can see the gospel permeating society. And society will always be blessed by the gospel as long as society accepts it. Well, anyway, those words sacred were removed. He, he, you know, Benjamin Franklin re- takes a few words out of the original Thomas Jefferson's first draft and says, let's use self-evident instead of sacred. It's okay. It's okay. I don't, it, it's still good. These truths are self-evident. And anyway, we, we, further, we go further along and we see momentous events in the courses of history. Actually, we can regress a little bit historically and see great men like John Newton, who himself was a slave trader. I mean, England was far ahead of America in terms of ridding itself from the slave trade, far removed from it. But thankfully, by the men in help of Wilbur Force and others in that particular day, they led England out of that terrible, terrible devastation. You know, slavery was so inherently despised that even the King James translators wouldn't use the word slave or slavery. They used the word servant. Even though the Greek word it meant exactly that, 
They had to make it acceptable, palatable, because it was such a stench even among men in that day, you see. But what I'm trying to convey to you today is is the advancement of God's kingdom on earth permeated the cultures and blessed the cultures. This is not a reformation of the world. The world has always been steeped in ignorance. It's always steeped in darkness. They sit in darkness. But by the blessings of God's people who are a light of the world, they influence the world and bless the world with these principles that reflect gospel truths. That's an amazing thing. And when you see the society rejected, and that's what you're seeing today. You're seeing society and governments at large being hostile toward Christianity. They're being hostile toward these truths of the Bible. That's when you know and you understand that when the Lord Jesus Christ looked at the world, he said, this world, you know what he's talking about. He's not talking about a world that he will reform. He's talking about a world that has been devastated from him, set apart, alienated from him. He's the creator. By him, all things were created. And by him all things consist. And yet he stands apart from the world. There in John chapter 13, that night when he, before he would be delivered up, he spoke about being reunited with his father and loving his own even to the end or to the uttermost. He would not leave his people. He came to seek and to save his people. But in contrast, he looks and he uses this phrase, This world, I'm going to be departed from this world. He isolates himself from his own creation. This world is sin. It rejected me. It retains not the knowledge of God. It will not, it rebels against God, you see. It's not going to be transformed. It's not going to be reformed. It will never pick up its own bootstraps. It will continue to hate God, despise him, you see. Man will not like to retain God in his in, in his knowledge, the Bible says. And that word in the Greek means that he will weigh God in the balance. Mankind has put God on the scale. And there's a pile of stuff here and there's gold here and he's choosing this stuff. He says, that's God. I don't want it. I reject, I reject God over here, the gold. And he accepts the dunghill over here. Mankind will always reject God by nature. He will always do it, you see. Jesus said, this world is condemned. It's under the curse. I have come that they might have life. God has given us life, you see. Isn't that beautiful? He's redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. And that's why I reject the doctrine of Christian reconstructionalism. However blessed people are that believe it, and it's a wonderful experience in knowing people and hearing them. In other words, they believe in a theocracy. They believe in the return, the literal return of these things of which Jesus said they are done away. They're no more. Because why? Because he's the fulfillment. If I've got the real thing, why do I want the shadow of it? Why do I want that which resembles it? I mean, here's a sign that says D.C., 30 miles. Now, which is real? Is D.C. in that sign on the side of the road? No, that's just merely a picture of what the real thing is. But we have people today, they want the signage. They want that which represents something. They don't want the real thing. I've got Christ, you see. We've got the real thing. That's where we're at in this scripture. It's coming out the right side, right beside what? The altar. So we're talking about redemption. 
Redemption accomplished and redemption applied. Isn't that beautiful? You see, when we think about regeneration, even of itself, the spiritual life that God gives the sinner, awakening him out of his deadness. Where does it come from? Where does that water flow from? It It flows by the altar of God, you see. Nothing comes out but by the altar of God, by the mercy seat. Isn't that wonderful? God must, he must satisfy divine justice. First and foremost, there must be the just who justifies the ungodly first. There must be the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ before the application of the spiritual life. It comes by the way of the altar. And he brought me by the way of the north gate. Why? Because he wasn't allowed in the east gate. The east gate is a picture of Christ. Only God went through the east gate. Now, at one particular point, it was opened, and then it was shut. You can read about that in the previous verses of the uh, previous chapters. But it opens. When does it open? It opens when Christ himself entered that gate. When he himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man goes to the Father except by me. He is the east gate. And notice, these waters ran out on the right side. And when the man that had the line in his hand, now we know who that is, because we can read about him in the previous chapters of Ezekiel. That man is the Lord Jesus himself. And he's got, in the book of Revelation, the reed in his hand. You know what that reed is? It's a measuring tool. It's gold in the book of Revelation. That reed represents the Lord Jesus Christ and his work and what he did on our behalf. He is the truth, you see, and by him all things are measured. By him, he is the standard by which all things are judged. He is the man. And so he walks out a thousand feet, excuse me, cubits, and his ankles. It's as deep as his ankles. And what I find amazing is that the, uh, the progression here is away from the sanctuary. It's, abs- it's away from the sanctuary. And I find that amazing because there I see the advancement of the kingdom of God on earth as it moves away from the centerpiece of all history back there in the Mesopotamia Valley. You see how it, it unravels and moves. And we see that God enlightens the world, if you will, with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God's people everywhere are coming out of the dwelling places of wickedness through the power of the Holy Spirit and they're bowing their knee, their ankles, their knees, their groins until ultimately they swim in the precious fountain of life. They're swimming. They trust God. They rely on God. They know Him to be his, their shield and buckler. They provide. Uh, they are provided for every aspect of their life, their spiritual life, their nourishment. God will never remove His Spirit from them. He has given us his spirit of life and that everlasting. How precious that is. Well, the fringes of the river, the Maori clay, they don't have this life. Everything in the river has life. All kinds of fishes. You know what I refer to as fishes? You're a fish and you're different kinds of fish. But God has blessed you. You know what we're doing nowadays? We're catching men by the gospel. We're preaching the gospel of the Son of God. And may the Lord bless you today.
We're glad you've been able to listen to this special podcast. We invite you to come and worship with us on a Sunday morning. Our services begin with hymn singing at 10.30 a.m. Mount Carmel Primitive Baptist Church is located at 1707 Churchville Road in Bel Air, Maryland. If you've enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast application.